Well, hello everybody and welcome to the August 2021 Mark Leverage podcast. As ever, I am absolutely delighted that you've decided to spend the next 30 minutes in my company and I hope you're going to enjoy the various topics that I've got lined up to chat with you about. I'm going to start by talking about sucker tricks for children's entertainers. When I first came into magic a million years ago, um, sucker tricks were a staple diet of most children entertainers' repertoires. Routines from Supreme Magic often had a stung type of idea where you apparently led the children along a garden path so that they thought they knew how the trick was done and at the end you proved to them that they were wrong. And loads of magicians used things like ABC Stung and various other variations of turn it round type sucker tricks in their shows. And I did as well. And then gradually I started to realise that actually this isn't great psychology. And it was brought home to me particularly when at one of the British Ring IBM conventions, they had a children's show which I went to watch. And they had some sort of lay people there, children in other words, and performers would go on and entertain them, and, and but the magicians were watching as well. And there was one particular very experienced children's entertainer who I watched, and I remember him doing a spelling trick in which every time he spelt the name of an object, when he turned over the card after he'd spelt it with a pile of cards, he would have the, that particular object. So if he spelt apple, there would be a picture of an apple. And he did this two or three times and he gave it to the to a kid and this kid must have been about six or seven years of age i suppose maybe slightly older but certainly no more than that and he got him to spell something cat or whatever it was and when the kid turned it up every time the kid did it he got a donkey and the magician would make some kind of making an ass of yourself or whatever it was and <clears throat> this happened two or three four times during the routine every time the kid did it he ended up with the donkey. And for the child, he, because the, the kids were laughing and the magician was kind of laughing too. And although it was meant to be funny because it was a donkey that was coming up, I think the way that the child saw it was that everybody was laughing at him, of course. And he started, you could see his expression start to change. And he was really starting to play up a little bit because he, he didn't like this. And, and actually, when you think about it, not unreasonably because his feelings were starting to be hurt. He felt he was being made to look really stupid in front of this large audience and he didn't like it. And in the end, he <laughs> he actually took a swipe at the a sort of slap at the magician who very hurriedly stopped the trick and sort of got him off the stage. But I thought, well, actually, in a way, the magician got what he deserved because he wasn't treating the child with any respect. And I think this is something that Perhaps we are more, I hope that we are more sensitive to this today than perhaps we were back 30 or 40 years ago. But it really isn't, in my view anyway, particularly great to make a child look foolish. You can still do the odd sucker trick from time to time. But of course, the better way to do it is if you were doing that spelling trick, for instance, is to do it so that every time that you spell it, you get the donkey. And every time the child spells it, he gets it correct. Just by simple changing round of who, who is the one who gets it wrong suddenly makes the joke on you, the magician, which is far more acceptable. And the kids will love that. And the child who comes up feels great because he keeps getting success. And it's the magician who's looking upset and stamping his foot in an exaggerated way and so on. So I think that just shows, doesn't it, that 
sometimes we, if we don't take into account how a child, even a quite small child, might be feeling, because although they always look very keen to come out and help the magician, I'm sure all children's entertainers have had that experience where you get a young child out to help and they look really animated and lively and you get them out there and they next to you and they freeze or they become very shy and they don't want to do anything that you ask them to do and you can't understand the change. Well, the change is, and adults are like it too, of course, sometimes, that when you bring them out of the audience and, and suddenly isolate them out with you, they already feel vulnerable. So if you then start to make, as they would see it, fun of them, then it's very quickly changes from them being happy to be there to being miserable, maybe even crying or just not being able to cope with what they see as a situation that where they're being made fun of. So I think sucker tricks, I, I hope that most of them have been consigned in their original format to the to room 101. Uh, but if they haven't, I think they really should be. Those of you who read Magic Scene magazine will no doubt have at some point delved into the reviews section where a team of six of us, that's Paul Prager, Chris Payne, Phil Shaw, Jay Fortune, Stuart Bowie and myself, take a look at some of the new releases in each issue. And I like to think that the review column is one of the most popular sections of the magazine because we don't have favourites, we tell exactly what we think of products and that doesn't mean we're looking to find things that are, that are wrong with them we are simply all of us our remit is to be as honest as possible and to give you as the reader a clear overview of what any trick that we are talking about and which you might be considering purchasing how it will be when you buy it and and I know for a fact that people have mentioned to me that they do trust our reviews and that's great because I think if, if reviews, once a review team loses its credibility, then you, it's just a waste of space because I think readers have to trust that the comments being made are genuine and that there is no axe to grind for any reason. So we try as a team to be even handed with the comments that we make about any product that comes across our desk. And in the same way that there is an art for us in trying to convey to you what our opinion of any particular item is. So I think for the, the reader, there is a responsibility, if that's the right word, to read the reviews in the way in which they were intended. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that every review is totally personal to that reviewer. You know, if we were to give the same product to all six of us and ask all of us to write a review, we would probably have quite a lot of parts that we would have a consensus of opinion about. But there may be other things, other nuances, in which we would find different pluses and minuses. Probably wouldn't be great, but there would be a few, I'm sure. So when you as the reader are reading a review, you have to bear in mind that it is the personal opinion of the reviewer is the, what he's putting across. That's all he can do. So when you read it, it's important to realise that the, the opinion that's being given may not coincide entirely with what you thought the product was going to provide. Now, there are two reasons why this might be. One is because the reviewer has seen the product and you haven't, so therefore he has insight and will try to reveal in his review what are the pluses and minuses of any particular item. But also I think sometimes we are so desperate 
to buy a particular trick. You know, you've watched the online demo and you got really excited about a trick and you think, I'll just read a review and see what the reviewers think, only to discover that they say that it's not as good as you thought it was. And the temptation is to say, oh, what does the reviewer know? And go ahead and buy it anyway. Well, of course, that's your prerogative. You can do that. But don't forget the reviewer has seen and played around with the item and you probably haven't. And so therefore he must have a bit more of an overview than you could possibly have. So I think taking the reviewer's comments properly on board is how you get the most out of the fact that the reviews are there in the first place. If you're simply going to ignore all the comments, if something says this really is not suitable for strolling magic and that's exactly what you decide to buy it for, then when you take it out, you discover that, hey, guess what? It's not suitable for strolling magic. Then you've only got yourself to blame, haven't you? So I think being reading reviews carefully, if there's an item in particular that you're interested in, to read the review of it very carefully and, and work out exactly, is there anything that you were hoping for it to do the reviewer doesn't mention, then bear that in mind. But if the reviewer does mention an element that is important to you, and it contradicts what you'd hoped it would do, then you would be best served, surely, to take that advice, because otherwise you, you could get bitten. So, um, so the, the art of writing and reading reviews is, is certainly one to be taken seriously if you're going to use it to help you with your buying decisions. But I have to say that I do love doing the reviews that I do. I do love doing them, and I find it fascinating to see um, all the various products and, and books and so on that come on the market. And we certainly hope that in Magic Scene we do a good job of um, giving you a, a heads up on what's good and what's not so good. I was talking to a young magician once who was relatively new to magic and he asked me how often I practice the tricks that I do. And I had to admit that, well, actually, apart from if a trick is new to my repertoire or something like that, the tricks that I use most of the time when I go out to work, I probably never practice them because I don't really need to because the shows come often enough. And of course, I think particularly with strolling or table hopping magic where you're repeating the same tricks sometimes multiple times over even one evening and with shows coming fairly regularly, you get very slick and very well oiled with the mechanics of doing your tricks. So you don't really need to practice. And he was saying, well, the trouble is he said, I only do a show or only do a performance once in a blue moon. So every time I've got something to, coming up, I need to go through and practice all my tricks because I can't remember them or I don't feel that I'm ready to actually perform them. And I thought, well, actually, this is absolutely right. This is what he should do, because if he's not performing on a regular basis, you do gradually lose that slickness with your handling. And so it occurred to me thinking about that, that with this relatively long layoff most of us have had, thanks to coronavirus of live shows, there must be quite a lot of us whose technique, the actual physical handling of our tricks may have degraded and may have gone off a bit. And I'm wondering whether even in my own case, whereas normally, as I said to him at that time, oh, I don't need to practice my tricks. I am actually going to practice them again just to, to bring them to the forefront of my mind, because what I don't want to do is to get into a live situation again. And, and, I, and I, it's a bit like falling off a bike. You get back on the bike and you carry on again. I, I make the assumption that the minute that I start up again, everything will just click back into place and it may well do. But I don't want my actual technique, and I'm not talking here about the presentation side of it, I'm talking about the actual moves. 
I don't want them to feel clunky or feel not quite right. So I intend to, and I will be practicing, and I've already started that process, practicing a few of the tricks that I would normally take out with me. I've got some gigs coming up and I, and I don't want to be caught short. And I, I think that maybe we're all going to have to think about this a little bit, especially if you've had a long layoff and you literally haven't performed at all. I mean, at least I've been lucky enough to be able to do some online stuff and I've been doing a lot, quite a lot of lectures. So I've still been performing, even if it's not my frontline working tricks from my working repertoire most of the time in the lectures. Nevertheless, I am actually doing presentation and actually doing performing. So I don't feel that rusty. But in order to get really on top of things, for all of us, uh, a period of, and, and probably practice in front of a camera even, just to, to make absolutely sure that everything's okay, wouldn't be a bad idea. In fact, even when you are in a regular stream of, of shows and bookings, sometimes it, you can go, you'll get too blasé. <laughs> you know, you're doing so many shows that you can actually, without realising it, gradually get a bit slap happy with your technique anyway. You start to flash the odd move or reveal that you've got something palmed because you're not watching your angles quite right. It's very easy, I think, to, to get lulled into a false sense of security. And I think when you're used to performing for lay people, and lay people often aren't looking that closely at your technique, they are enjoying your hopefully your overall presentation, but they're not really analysing what you're actually doing a lot of them. Some of them are, but most of them probably aren't then you, you do find that you can get away with, that horrible phrase, you can get away with slightly less than perfect technique. But of course, if your technique is perfect, then you don't have to worry, do you? And I think every now and again, it, it does pay to, even when we are busy with shows, to take, if there are, particularly if there are some routines that are relatively demanding in terms of technical uh, moves, to actually run through them and, and film them or watch them in, at least in a mirror or get somebody else to watch them, a magical friend, just to see whether you are flashing or whether in fact, yep, everything looks fine. Uh, because then you can go out and perform with so much more confidence when you feel that the technical side of your, of your work is absolutely up to scratch. And it means that if that side of it's okay, then you can put all of your mental energy during a show into making sure that all the gags and the asides and the presentation is you're on top of that as well. Every now and again in the podcast, I like to drop in a pre-recorded audio track of something taken from my eClub Pro Vaults. And um, I've used some of my Mark's monthly messages in the past. And this time I'm going to offer you a story from the section on eClub Pro that's called It Could Only Happen Live. This is where I have video of me sitting at a coffee table, having a cup of coffee and chatting to you about some of the things that have happened to me in the 40 years that I've been a full time pro. And some of the stories are horrific, some are funny uh, and some are just really interesting. And, and I know that a lot of people love to, to watch these because I suppose it's a case of us feeling, oh, so uh, even a full time pro gets these type of things happening to him. So I thought it might be interesting to put one of those in now. And um, this is one from It Could Only Happen Live. And it's all to do with the first time I tried a brand new idea that I had. And I was doing a test run of it. 
I was um, working on a trip which I eventually released called Diary of a Nobody, which was my take on the dance and diary trick. And um, I'd worked out a method that I thought was really quite nice, a little kicker on the ending, and I intended to market this, uh, this particular routine, and it went into a lecture as well in the end. Um, but it required me to um, take a diary, and as most of these things do, and fill out a sequence of playing cards in the diary. And um, so I'd made up a sample copy, which I, which I did, and I decided that I needed to practice this. It's a kind of a slightly awkward trick to practice without somebody there. So I did something that I don't often do. I decided to ask my wife, Ros, whether she would, um, whether I could do this trick for her. So she said, yeah, yeah, of course. So, um, so I started the trick. And, and part of the trick is that you say to the person, um, I'd like you to give me the date of your birthday. And I'm going to use the date of your birthday to select a card from the pack using the month and the day. And I said to my wife, I said, well, actually, Ross, obviously, I know the date of your birthday. Well, I, I pretended I did. Um, I said, so what I'd like need you to do, just so that, you know, you, you, we can see this isn't a setup or anything, just um, give me a date off the top of your head and we'll pretend that's your birthday date. So she gave me a date. And I went through the whole of the business, went through the whole of the trick. And I got to the end. And when I turned over the card, it didn't match the one in the diary. And I couldn't understand it. And she, and she looked at me and she went, well, that's not very good, is it? Uh, no, it's not supposed to do that. It's supposed to come out with the same card in the diary on that date. It's supposed to be the same that came out of the pack. And I could not understand it because I'd gone through the, the, the theory of this uh, many times. And I'd gone out of through a few run-throughs. And it had been absolutely fine. So I couldn't understand why, when it came to a performance... And I, and I went through in my head, like you do, you know, when something goes wrong, you think, oh, I must have done a sequence, part of the sequence wrong, or something like that. I wasn't really sure. Anyway, so I went back up to my office, and I was looking at this, and I was fiddling around, and I thought, perhaps I'd better check, and this takes quite a long time, because there's 365 days in a year, but I thought, I'd better check every day, and make sure the right card is written on it. And I went through the diary, 364 days had the correct card written against them. But there was one, and only one, where I'd made an error when I'd filled out the, days, the, the, the cards in the diary. And that was the date that she had chosen. Now, bearing in mind that she could have chosen any day except the date of her birthday, she had a choice of 364 days in the year. And she picked, completely at random, the one and only day in which I had written the wrong card in the diary. I mean, you, I could have performed that trick for years and that never happened to me. And yet the very first time I tried it on my wife, she picks the day in which I've got it wrong, quite by chance. How is that? Well, we know how it's possible these things happen, but uh, I just couldn't get over the coincidence of that. And it's one of those things, it's not so much a... <laughs> It could only happen live. It's more a case of, wow, that could have happened live. <laughs> I mentioned earlier in this podcast about doing reviews for Magic Scene. And one of the items that I reviewed in a recent issue was a book by Jamie Ian Swiss called The Conjurer's Conundrum. And it's one of a series of books published by Vanishing Inc. called Astonishing Essays. 
And this particular one I thought was really interesting because it's not about magic as such at all. It's about Jamie's work, who, along with others, has made lots of attempts over many years to debunk spiritualists. He's worked with James Randi and others who have spent a lot of time trying to see whether, first of all, such a thing as contacting people in, in the afterlife is, is possible, and if it's not, debunking those who claim that it is. Anyway, it's, it's a very interesting book, and as I say, although it's not related directly to magic itself, it makes for a, a very interesting read. And one of the things that I took from it, which I thought was rather interesting, was he says that he, the reason that he doesn't like spiritualists is that he feels that they are being very dishonest with the people who pay them money because they are claiming to be able to bring messages or have contact with people on the other side. And he said this is this is not fair because the, the people who want this contact and who are paying money and think that they're hoping that they're going to receive some sort of special message are just having the wool pulled over their eyes. And he says that these people are being badly deceived and taken advantage of in when they are perhaps emotionally distraught about a loved one who's recently departed. So he doesn't like this and he says there is a difference between what spiritualists do and what magicians do. And the difference is because you could say that as magicians that's what we do. We promise we're going to be able to do things and we apparently show that we can do things that we can't do. So what's the difference? Well the difference in Jamie's view is that we are honest liars <laughs> and spiritualists are dishonest liars. And the reason we magicians are honest liars is because I assume this is everybody when he when he says this. Most of us anyway don't make claims that we are real magicians. People understand when they watch what we do that there is a method. And for some of our spectators, part of the fun is trying to work out what that method is. But they know going in that there is a method. Now, of course, there are some lay people who are easily duped and who almost do want to believe that what we do is real. But underneath it all, if they were to sit in the cold light of day and you said to them, do you really think that I have some sort of superhuman magical powers, they'd have to say, well, no. And of course, if if any magician claims that he has, and he is being disingenuous, because clearly we don't. So that's the difference that Jamie, that's the, the distinction that Jamie makes, that we are honest liars. And I think there's something to be said for that, because I have had an, the odd occasion in the past where people have tried to make me admit that I have some sort of special powers. I really don't, of course. I'm an entertainer. That's what I do. And I can remember there was one um, children's show for a preschool group where after the booking, the, um, the booker came back to me and said, when I did the show, would it be OK? And bearing in mind, these children are three and four year olds. So you can imagine the type of magic I was going to be doing for them. Very sort of visual and simple and slapsticky and so on. And the woman said um, some of the other mothers who were on the committee, the PTA committee, or whatever the committee was of the, pre the preschool group, um, they wondered whether when I, after I'd done each trick, could I explain to the children how it was done? Because they didn't want the children to think that I had genuine powers uh, and they wanted the children to understand that what I was doing was just using sort of different means to fool them. 
And I said, no, uh, I can't do that. First of all, the children wouldn't understand what on earth I was doing. And that's ridiculous. I said, well, what, why do you think this is important? So, well, we don't want them to think you're some sort of devil worshipper. I thought, oh, my goodness me, devil worshipper. I mean, talk about a confusion here between what an entertainer does, a magician as an entertainer does, and what the dark arts might be. It seemed utterly ridiculous. Anyway, I said to the woman, no, look, um, I, I, I'm sorry, but I really can't take this seriously. But uh, no, I can't do that. It's not practical. Everything I do is very simple. It's at a very nice level. It's just entertainment for the children. And in the end, she said, OK, well, don't worry about it. And I went into the show and, of course, it was fine. But it just goes to show you that some people really do have a thing about magicians. So if we start claiming that we are genuine rather than honest liars, we could be storing up a whole load of trouble for ourselves. Back in the very late 1990s, I was booked to do a corporate event and I was doing tables. And at one point during the evening, I was obliged to stop because they were having a 45 minute cabaret show uh, during the meal from a celebrity. I won't tell you who it was, but it was somebody very well known. And he'd been around a long time and he was well known on the after dinner speaker circuit. And he'd been on television and radio programs. And he, he was he was a, a very well thought of sort of speaker come comedian. And I was actually quite looking forward to standing there and, and, and watching him work. And he was very funny. But the thing that I noticed and that I was really surprised was that his material was incredibly out of date. He was still he made a lot of political jokes and it was all about people in like Margaret Thatcher and people in her cabinet. And, and this was like 10 years after the event, as it were. And I thought, oh, my goodness, he's not updated his material. The material is funny. And it works. And for the people in, the, in this particular audience, most of them were old enough to know what he was referring to. So the jokes were understood. But I was left feeling, wow, th this guy hasn't moved on. And I think this is, a, this is a danger for all of us who have been in magic for quite some time. It's very easy, isn't it, to allow the material, whether it's the actual magic itself or the presentation and patter that goes with it, to become very dated. I'm sure we've all had this uh, this situation occur where somebody just in ordinary life, it's not in a show, in ordinary life, somebody says something and almost before you can stop yourself, you come out with a line of a song that's kind of appropriate or funny in the context of what somebody's just said. And they kind of st stand there and they look at you and you suddenly realise you've just quoted a song from 30 years ago and this person is 25 they have absolutely no idea what you're talking about and why that should be funny or relevant to what they've just said. Well, it's bad enough when you find yourself humming or singing a tune out loud that's out of date, but worse when you try and make a joke of it in, in sort of general public, but even worse is when it's in your act. I have seen one or two acts where I thought that the presentation, magic acts I'm talking about now, hasn't, hadn't moved on. And it, it is something to, to watch out for. My, my theory about this has always been that if you want to be topical, if you want to make topical jokes or references, they have to be genuinely topical. There's no point in having something that's topical now and trying to do it in six years time. It's not likely to be topical anymore. 
and all that you do by trying to use it, it's, it's almost lazy in a way because you think, well, that, that's a funny line, I'll use that. I think we've all got to be a little bit ruthless, perhaps, with the material and say, OK, actually, that line no longer works. I've got one or two lines that I absolutely love using, which have worked incredibly well. and I'm having to cut them out because now the moment for those lines has gone and the person that I'm referring to is no longer in the limelight. And although for the next two or three years, probably if I mention it, people will know it's it starts to sound dated and old fashioned and out of step with the modern times. So it, it really isn't easy, but I think it is worth. And again, sometimes it's hard for us when we're performing. We say things or we do things without even realising that they sound dated. So having somebody maybe to either make a recording of, of a show or somebody sit in and just notice and see whether there's anything that's not quite uh, appropriate anymore could be very, very helpful. Because if you don't do that, then the, the danger is gradually your act becomes more and more dated and less relevant to modern audiences. And of course, none of us want that, do we? Let's face it. We all want to remain, want to be seen as somebody, even as we get older, we still want to be seen as someone who can do a job in the modern day and be relevant to the people that we're entertaining. And that's not going to be possible if obviously we've got material that's clearly no longer relevant. So every now and again, have a little look at the pattern, have a look at the presentation and see whether you're falling foul of being out of date. Well, there we are. There's another podcast. Thank you so much for, for listening to everything. I hope you found some good food for thought in that. And have a good month and I will look forward to coming back with some more topics to talk about in September. Bye for now.